0: Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and boy, do I have an exciting guest today, Kekan Randall. Kekan Randall is the first U.S. gold medal winner in cross-country skiing, and she won in the South Korean Winter Olympics in uh, 2018 in the Team Sprint, and what, what, what a story she has. Uh, I think she was four or five or six when she got this idea in her head, growing up in, in Alaska, uh, that she wanted to be a, a Nordic skier, a cross-country skier. And, uh, it's interesting to think about for all of us, at what point did we know we wanted to do what we ended up doing? And many of us are still wondering how did it ever happen? She knew, um, and she got very serious about it and trained. And, um, by the time she was 18 or 19, she, uh, along with her coaches, uh, made a 10 year plan to get to the, uh, gold, to to have a real chance to win a gold medal, a 10 year plan. Think about that for a moment. How many, how many of us have a 10 year plan for, for, for anything? And the fact that at the age of 18 or 19, which is um, a pretty capable age in mo- for most sports, uh, she knew and her coaches knew that it's a long haul in uh, cross-country skiing before you're able to really compete at a global level uh, and become a serious contender for, the, um, for, for a gold medal. And... Um, uh, it turns out it took longer than ten years. She was thirty-five years old, actually, when she won the gold medal, and it's uh, it's a tremendous uh, story. So we, we we're going to talk about you know uh, w- w- cross country skiing, what what it is and how it works. And it turns out, like so many things in uh, in life today, uh, analytics, sports analytics, and technology play a gigantic uh, role. And it's really one of the one of the things I've talked to other other guests on the Sidcast, uh, uh about, uh, Jillian Apps in, in ice hockey and. Um, uh, Mark Shapiro from the Toronto Blue Jays about baseball uh, analytics and uh, and and it turns out in cross country skiing they're pretty so, they're pretty sophisticated as one little uh, one little tidbit each team has an entire group of uh, tech people that are in charge of wax that's right. The wax that you're putting on your cross-country skis, and n- the Norwegians, who are the global leaders in uh, Nordic skiing for uh, just about forever, have a gigantic team just involved with that. It's really, really a fascinating, amazing type of uh, type of sport, and sport that you know, not everybody is uh, following that as closely as we might, you know, basketball or football. But the dedication that Kikan had um, to um, to accomplish what she did uh, is really amazing. Her story is 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 bigger than a gold medal. Um, she is a uh, uh, an inspirational speaker and a leader in her own right as she transitions out of um, full time sports. And she's also a yeah, cancer survivor. And uh, her story of uh, um, of competing at the highest level and uh, much more recently fighting. Uh, literally for her life at the at the highest level, uh, with the most at stake is uh, is powerful, meaningful, and one that uh, I really wanted to uh, I really wanted to have a chance to share uh, with uh, with you. So um, uh, let's uh, let's bring uh, Keegan Randall into the studio. Welcome to the Sidcast. I'm here with Keegan Randall. Good morning, Keegan.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's
0: a pleasure. Uh, we're uh, we're in the beautiful Hanover Inn restaurant and. Uh, Uh, All kinds of people are sipping on some coffee, and the eggs are coming soon, so we'll get a bit of our conversation in. Um, So, Keegan, you know, did you grow up wanting to be an Olympic athlete, that kind of little girl sitting around thinking, boy, if only I'd love to do that?
1: (laughs) You know, I have this vivid memory of watching my first Olympic Games on TV at five years old. And that was the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. And I remember watching the American team walk in in their cowboy hats. And I had been prefaced a little bit because my aunt and uncle had gone to the Olympics. So watching that, watching those athletes march in, watching the games unfold over those two weeks, I decided I was going to follow my aunt and uncle and I was going to go to the Olympics. It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of what <laughs> sport I was going to pick. Wow.
0: And, uh, so what, what were your aunt and uncle, what, what um, sport were they in? Uh, so my Uncle
1: Chris Haynes was in the 1976 Olympics in cross-country skiing, mm-hmm. and my Aunt Betsy Haynes was in the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. Wow. So both cross-country skiers, I have to admit, early on, though, I knew I wanted to go to the Olympics, but I thought I would pick a much cooler sport. <laughs> uh, I didn't see myself going into cross-country, so it was kind of ironic that that's where I ended up When later did you on.
0: actually start, um, I don't know, training seriously, if that's the right word? Because as a kid, you just do it i i i I don't imagine five-year-olds there's you know um, cross-country training camps
1: no definitely i mean my childhood was really just spent playing outside i had a lot of cousins and i made good friends in the neighborhood and we would do pickup games of soccer and i played football every day at recess and Hmm. growing up in alaska where we have six months of winter you can't help but get pulled into the winter sports, so right, right. my dad had me on alpine skis the day after my first birthday, Wow! and then I started in cross-country on the age of five or six. Didn't fall in love with it at first. Uh, it's because hard work. It was hard work. <laughs> You're
0: not just gliding down the hill.
1: Exactly. So I got coaxed along with some hot chocolate and yes. uh, playing games, and I loved going off jumps, so I figured out if I skied up the top of the hill faster, then I got to do more jumps. Okay. And Uh, Looking back that was probably fortuitous to to do it that way Um, So I just bounced around I played a lot of sports my parents uh, Were really open to having me try a lot of things They taught me that once I committed to something I needed to at least see it through that commitment So whether that was a season or or practice, but if at the end of the season I was wanting to try something else then I was kind of free to do that So it was wonderful. I think to grow up doing so many things so that when I got into high school, I was getting a bit more serious about running. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been alpine skiing. All my running friends were gonna do cross-country skiing. So initially it was just a way to stay in shape for running in the winter. And then I kind of started to realize that actually cross-country skiing for me was the combination of all the sports I love to do. I got to go fast down the hills, right. I got to have the team aspect like soccer, and I started to realize that no American woman had ever won an Olympic medal in cross-country skiing. How old
0: were you when you realized that in high school? I
1: was uh, yeah 16, and I kind of thought, well shoot, but, like, wouldn't it be cool to try to go after it and be, be the cool. first? Like, I, just, I don't see any reason why we can't do that. Like, maybe it just needs a new approach. And I'd gotten linked up with a ski program at the time run by a three-time Olympian named Jim Galanis. And he had this idea that the reason why Americans hadn't been successful was because our system wasn't going about it the right way. All of our talented skiers were going directly into the NCAA, which was, I mean, great a great racing program in mm-hmm. school and everything. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to get enough European racing experience. It was hard to get in the training volumes you needed to keep up with the rest of the world. Right. So he said, you know, I think if you get in a good training environment and you put in that volume mm-hmm. in those years when it really counts, mm-hmm. I think you can be successful. So it was this nice combination of mm-hmm. a little bit of my curiosity uh, my ambition, but then having that idea planted in my head and right. having a program that would support me through those critical years.
0: The, 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 the years when it really counts. So does that mean when you're young that that's the most critical time as in teenager?
1: I think actually when you're a teenager, that's the part where you're still learning a lot, you're exploring. Um, when I was in high school, I was still doing cross-country running. I was still doing track. Um, I think at that point, I'm glad I stayed a little bit more multidimensional, but when I was 18, that's when I decided, okay, I'm really going to focus on this full-time, yeah. and I think from 18 to 22, uh, you really need to increase the amount of you your training, and you kind of need to specialize, and you need to be getting that high-level race experience. Right, right. And that's where typically you're in those college years, and so if you're having to do a full load of credits, mm-hmm. if you're having to race domestically and you're not able to get away, uh, you're kind of losing out on some of those opportunities, and then at 22, if you come out and you're like, okay, now I'm going to ski, you're four years, four or five years behind the rest of the world, and then it takes a long time to catch back up. Right, right.
0: So they just brought over our, our breakfast. I want to ask you about training and how is it that these Norwegians and other northern Europeans can't lose, it seems like, and I want to know why that is.
1: Well, the Norwegians are born with skis on their feet. All right. I mean, certainly, <laughs> what's, it's so culturally ingrained there mm. that... There are really supportive programs mm-hmm. all over the country that you don't have to be at the, on the national team to get really high-level level support, training partners, coaching. So it is a great place to go if you're looking to get become a better skier to go and plug into that system. Right. But then you're also being taken away from your own support system, right. which is almost more important on the mental side than it is the physical side. Because if you're a young, you know, 18, 19-year-old, and now you're away from your family, mm-hmm. you're in a new culture where the level's really high, but, you know, it's a little different culture, and you got to find your way in that. And so what I chose to do is I chose to stay at home in Alaska. And I just made sure that I was getting a lot of opportunity to be over in Europe racing during the winter. And I looked for opportunities when I was home in North America in the summer right. to find the other top U.S. athletes, to find the other top Canadian athletes. Mm-hmm because I really looked at it as a, a North American advantage there to
0: mm-hmm.
1: combine forces. Yeah. And uh, no, I, I think there were, could have been opportunities when I was younger to do more of, of going over and training in Europe and getting a bit more exposure that way. But it was also cool just to be able to see that it was possible to develop in the U.S. to develop in North so, America I'm and still be successful. I'm
0: going to ask you a very tough uh, question and I know I'm, I, I promised to let you eat so I'm breaking my own rule but you made me think You made me think about it. Uh, do you think that you would have um, progressed faster if you had spent more time as an even full time mm-hmm. with the Norwegians?
1: I would have potentially progressed faster, I think for sure. I would have been able to train bigger volumes. I would have been getting a little bit more experience. I'm not sure, though, if I would have been able to support myself financially in that section, Mm -hmm. because if you're in Norway, you're one one of many greats, and Norwegians are very proud. They want to support their own. Mm -hmm. So they'll let you come train there, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't have been able to get personal sponsors and the things I needed, so I'm not sure how I would have afforded to do it. And the cool thing about developing back at home in Alaska was that early on... I was just open about my ambition to try and win that first ever Olympic medal. I was very interactive with the community. I really loved sharing what I was doing, Mm -hmm. uh, what things I was learning, inspiring kids to be healthy and active because that's kind of what cross-country skiing represents. And all of that helped me build the support I needed to eventually make it a full-time gig to where I could focus on training, I had the financial support, I had the team support, and I think the value of that, too, was that I was helping develop the people around me.
0: Yeah. If I'd gone to
1: Norway, I would have helped maybe the Norwegians develop a bit more. <laughs> but I wouldn't have had what I was learning to bring back. So yeah, you're right. It I wouldn't go back and change it. I mean, I, I wish I would have made some friends on international teams a little earlier and been... Uh, brave enough to go over and say, hey, can I come train with you? Mm-hmm. Because I figured that out later in my career, yeah, yeah. and it ended up being amazing, both mm-hmm. for me professionally, but also developed lifelong friends out of it. Right. So, uh, right. I've definitely been trying to pass that idea on to my younger teammates of, hey, you know, don't be afraid. Go, go ask them if you can come train. Invite them to come train with you. Yeah. You'd be surprised what, what it's, that it's, re-
0: it's really interesting what you're saying, Keegan, about there's like a lot of things, a lot, lot of dimensions here to consider, not just the raw training and and athletic um, uh, drive for athletic excellence in a vacuum, which maybe you can't do that. Maybe for a very short period of time, you could, but to sustain it would be next to impossible. You need that support system, and then you you have the added benefit of being part of a community where, you know, especially in North America, it's not that common to be winning uh, cross country gold medals. Uh, we'll be uh, right back with Keegan Randall. <laughs> Okay, we're back with Keegan Randall.
1: We were really fortunate that we had an, a really amazing role model in our women's coach on the U.S. team, and I think that's a big part of why we Who was started. That? His name was Matt Whitcomb, and he's he's still the the U.S. national team women's coach. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a younger coach at the time, and he came in, and I think he recognized that we had this like pretty cool group of women, but we're all strong and independent, mm-hmm. and we were starting to kind of collaborate on the in the training sessions. Mm-hmm. But we were spending so much time together on the road that it was going to be more than just working together in the training sessions. It was going to be really kind of talking out loud Mm -hmm. about committing to supporting each other, that trust, that respect. Mm -hmm. Um, It was about anticipating problems that Mm -hmm. may come up down the road, Mm -hmm. um, which I think ended up being really important for us as the level of the whole team rose, because initially... I was the veteran on the team, and I had started to get success. And all mm-hmm. these young skiers were coming in, and they were eager to learn, and they just they kind of wanted to follow like little ducklings. <laughs> but as they all became good, everyone develops their own way. Mm-hmm. And then we were competing for relay spots. But whereas when we first started, we couldn't even feel the relay. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, we have six girls for four spots, or six girls for two spots. And they're
0: all and they're all good.
1: Everybody's good. We know everybody's worked hard. And so, how do you kind of mm. all decide that? You've all played a part in the success, and you're going to yeah. do whatever you can to make that team. But should you not get named to the team, right. you at least know you've helped make your team teammates better, and yeah. then everybody can feel success.
0: So, how, I mean, how do you get that? Because it's natural for someone to be disappointed. And, and competitiveness is a complicated thing where, you know, a lot of people look at it as, you know, I win, you lose, a zero-sum game, which is the opposite of what you're describing. How do you, how do you get that so the people that are not, the, the two girls that are not part of that final team, relay team, they are not just rooting for you on the sidelines, but really, really caring and helping you?
1: I think we, we talked about it. Um, and again, we talked about it before it was a real issue. Huh so I think when you're confronting it and you're reacting to it in the heat of the moment it's a lot harder to kind of start to conceptualize in your mind Um, and so by talking about it ahead of time and kind of practicing how we would support each other Mm -hmm. um, everybody getting to experience kind of both sides of being on the team Mm -hmm. but then also getting to see what it felt like to not be on the team and then talking about what our team's success represented, how it was so much bigger than that two girls or that four girls getting the medal. This was about the example we were setting, yeah. this was about encouraging other groups groups to work together, this was about elevating cross-country skiing in the uh-huh. U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we started mm-hmm. to realize like what the actual goal was and the, and the impact and everybody bought into that. And I think a lot at the beginning was just talking about it. And then the more you talk about it, the more it just becomes
0: Yes, that's real. So, that is so true. Uh, because there's something that happens in our brains about that. Yeah. You, you start to believe what you've been saying. Yep. Uh, and it's not a bad story to believe. But h- how about this? I don't know whether you can answer this or not. But would you say that what you're describing is the same on men's teams as much as it is on women's teams?
1: I think there's something a little bit unique about women's teams. I think their emotional connection to getting selected or not selected (laughs) is maybe a little bit stronger. Mm -hmm. Guys can be a little bit more objective and say, okay, I I just didn't do X, Y, Z, and therefore I didn't qualify for the team. Mm -hmm. But as a a woman, as a female, you can sometimes read a little bit more into it and attach your self-worth to that result. And so that's where I think it was important, again, for us to really just talk a lot about it and to females tend to uh get a lot more power in the group and the social belonging piece so i think talking about how this whole process leading up to the actual race of how we were working together and how enriching that was to our lives and and to see the greater impact that that was having before the race ever happened really i know helped me personally just buy into it that much more realizing that i was contributing to something greater than myself whether or not I was on the team that day.
0: See, that's that's so interesting because there is some emerging research about men and women in competition. There's actually a lot of research on different ways men and women in all kinds of fields think about competition. But specifically to what you're saying, women gain uh, become even more competitive when they're part of a team. And as part of that team... They are, they are arch competitors, uh, and men are, are going to be uh, more individualistic. I mean, that's a broad generalization. There's a lot of variation, of course. But there's a, there's more of that, and uh, this has come up in a few contexts in business, when you think about, you know, if you're not really competitive, you're not willing to step up and say, you know, I'm the one, I'm going to do it. Uh, some people will, will think, well, she doesn't really have it, and um, a lot of men, whether they really have it or not, or got their hand in the air, and I'm going to do it. Um, and so when the context uh, is, is more of a team orientation for women, you get that you get that and more. And women are as competitive as anyone as anyone possibly could be. And you're kind of describing real life exactly what that was.
1: Oh, exactly. I've seen it play out in my own career, in my own interactions with my teammates, and I've been on a lot of different teams. Thankfully, most of the teams I've been on have, have been able to mm-hmm. cultivate this good competitiveness to lift everybody up Mm -hmm. and some of the things i'm most proud of that i look back on are the team accomplishments Mm -hmm. i mean it's amazing how quickly my mind goes to that as opposed to some of my individual accomplishments um but i've also noticed it in this organization i help lead called fast and female where our mission is to keep girls involved in sports and we're realizing that as boys and girls enter sports at pretty equal levels so why, it, why are girls leaving at six times the rate of boys by the time they're 14? Six times? Yeah.
0: Wow. I didn't um, know that.
1: And so we're trying to discover these, these factors, and what we've realized is that, one, social belonging for girls is huge. Mm-hmm. When they're pulled into the right group, that can lift them to another level, that mm-hmm. can keep them engaged, that gives them sometimes the confidence to be vulnerable, to realize mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm not perfect at this, mm-hmm. but there's more reasons to be involved than just the end result. Right. So that can be powerful. But then also the power of role models. I think for girls, when they can see their role models in person in a, in a something they can relate to, girls really gain a lot of power from that. They gain it's, a lot
0: of power from having a personal connection with right, their role Right, as model.
1: opposed to seeing their hero in a cereal box somewhere. Yes. You know, I think a... a a lot of boys can just, they can see their hero on TV or wherever it was and they can just be like that's what I'm going to do but for a girl she'll go through this thought process of oh well that's really cool but that person was probably born out of a dinosaur egg and they're superhero (laughs) and you know that's not me Mm -hmm. so what we try to do with Fast and Female um, this organization is we try to we bring the athletes in to work with the girls so they actually get to mm-hmm. connect one on one you know we the girls have name tags on so the athlete can walk up to the girl and you, you know directly connect with her yep. and then as we share our stories we talk about all the different things we did growing up that set us up to have this wonderful life in sports and all that it being involved in sports has brought to us yeah. and it's amazing how you, i've watched girls transform in the matter of a couple of hours really of really being timid and, and really not thinking that sports mm. is for them to all of a sudden just being running around and just having so much fun and asking their parents to get signed up for this and this and this um, and so it's amazing just again I think giving that girls that, that confidence mm. and sometimes it's, it's just being in a group of people you can connect to and sometimes it's connecting with that role model and, uh, yeah. and I think that's really powerful on sports teams too
0: can't, can't help but think about that application in lots of other places as you think about um, women in engineering, women in STEM, um, that, um, of course, the numbers are way better than they ever were before, but they're, they're nowhere um, equal in terms of men and women. And may, maybe we, we follow more of an individualistic, one-size-fits-all model in education um, and training in many fields and sports. I mean, it's something really powerful, what you're describing. <laughs> if we could figure out a way to translate that. I mean, have you done any work in other fields by talking about this philosophy almost? It's more than a philosophy, it's real, it's an act. It's a set of tools and techniques almost. Uh, uh, Have you found interest already from other fields on kind of trying to think about how how can we apply these ideas from sports into our world? It's nothing to do with sports.
1: Yeah, well, I've had the pleasure to, uh, I'm now in a role with the International Olympic Committee, and I'm on the uh, Women in Sport Commission, yeah. so just already in my few months in that role I've gotten to kind of have connection with the UN women and what they're doing. Hmm. Um, so w- using the example that we're seeing in sport yep. uh, of this kind of team dynamic culture and leaders yeah. and starting to realize like where can we then transition that to other areas in the world where yeah. we need to encourage more women and. Mm-hmm. I think the the role model piece is huge. I think if we can do a better job of getting the women that are the kind of lone riders in their fields Mm -hmm. a little bit more connected with um, younger women who maybe are curious Mm -hmm. about that field or are are just starting to get into it and really connecting them on on a real personal basis, that can really help. And then I think just fostering kind of the, the groups, like knowing that if, say, one woman is going to go into engineering, she's looking around and she can't relate to those that she's around because yeah. it's all men. And, yeah. But if all of a sudden you get a group of three or four right. and you kind of cultivate them together and you bring them through together, then, that, then they can work off each other and have that confidence and build. And, and I don't think they're, they're isolated from their male counterparts necessarily, but you kind of need that critical mass. That's what yeah. I've what what I've seen has helped us a lot in sport, and I think would be something to focus on in a lot of areas right. outside of sport.
0: Yeah, you, you think about it in business also. There's mentorship programs, sponsorship programs. It's actually quite complicated now for all sorts of all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. um, mostly around Me Too, and a lot of men, frankly, not sure what they can do, and what they can't do, what they can say, what they can't say, um, which is a kind of terrible side effect of really bad behavior coming to light. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's common in companies to have mentors for all sorts of people. Sometimes in a structured, in a structured way, but I think you're going beyond the, the mentor. Your your idea. I mean, it's there's an element of that to be sure. But a mentor kind of steps in, and every now and then can answer some questions. And you're 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 talking about rule model, but you're also talking about the team, and maybe both together is really, really what the key is. I'm just thinking out loud about how to put this into into action in more fields.
1: I think it's a fabulous question. Um, I think one thing we saw on our team was that we had to talk about these things.
0: Yeah. And we kind of yeah, had to... That we, that had, so we had said that already. That is so interesting. You had to talk about it.
1: And we had to create these situations where we were all kind of working together, and not just on the training field, but we would literally, like, force ourselves to go bowling at night. <laughs> which, it felt a little forced at first. Yeah. But then we realized, oh, we're more interacting outside mm-hmm. of training. Mm-hmm. We're bonding, and we're creating, you know, more of this. And then eventually, it just happened organically. And so I yeah. think in the business world... If you started to kind of, at the beginning, maybe make some of these forced things, like get more women together, get them connected with uh, those that are kind of the role models in the field in a more consistent basis, Mm -hmm. then after a while I think that would just, that would start happening organically, and then... A big piece of this puzzle is men and women interacting together. Like, my perfect world in the future is when it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. You're just, you're good in your field and you're doing what you're doing. And so part of it is teaching us all how to work together. And so, my hope would be that maybe initially you have to focus on developing that women's group, but then ultimately we figure out how to expand it and figure out how everyone works together. And that was one of the cool things about cross-country skiing. While we had our women's team, mm-hmm. we were always together with the men as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I loved not being so totally isolated. I loved interacting with my male teammates as well and trying to take what, what was working well in our women's team yeah. and try to influ- oh, really? influence the men's <laughs> team. It hasn't quite taken on 100% mm-hmm. yet, yeah. but we really are trying to identify like what's worked for us and how we can help cultivate that on the men's side as well and then come together as, right. as one whole team. Wow,
0: well, very interesting. I've got to ask you about the Olympics. What was it like the first time when you walked in the opening ceremony? What year was that?
1: My first Olympics was in 2002.
0: 2002.
1: In Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City, right. So I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. um, a little bit on the young side for cross-country skiing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt a little bit like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> uh, we Cell phones had just kind of started to come out, and so I remember lining up for the march from the staging area down to the stadium we're all on our cell phones going hey mom look at me I'm <laughs> in the third row and we're so excited we start walking down and I started with my teammates but somehow in the, in the shuffle of it all I ended up at the front with the short track speed skaters <laughs> and there was so much excitement but because we were the home team we walked in last Right. and so it was a full hour before we actually you could hear the roar from the stadium mm. and it was a full hour before we actually walked in so by the time we got our turn I remember my heart was beating out of my chest. I I had my video camera in one hand, but I just was looking around. I think there were 80,000 fans Mm. in the stands that night. And for me, because I would dreamt about going to the Olympics since five years old, it was this incredible dream come true to be there walking into that opening ceremonies. And then in my first race, I had a lot of friends and family that had come down Mm -hmm. because it was so close Mm -hmm. to watch the race. And so right as I'm about to go out at the start, someone yells, Go East High, which is the high school I went to. Oh, boy. And I remember just feeling so jazzed that I just took <laughs> off like a, like a bullet and then realized about 30 seconds into the race that it was I had five kilometers to cover. That so I better chill a little stuff. bit. So, <laughs> That's fine. Um, that experience was, was really cool for me because I knew my development was still many years in the future. Mm-hmm. And so I was there really to gain experience yeah. and to be inspired by everything around me. And uh, a Canadian racer, Becky Scott, actually ended up winning a bronze medal hmm. in one of the races. And I really got a lot of confidence from seeing her succeed. She ended up getting upgraded to gold because, unfortunately, the two uh, skiers uh. ahead of her were later disqualified. Um, but that was a, a pivotal moment for me to realize, like, watching her, yeah, my look, role model,
0: we, This is possible. you know, that
1: this is possible. And then I remember after those Olympics sitting down with my coaches hmm. and literally making out a 10-year plan. Of really? how I was going to work my way from 44th place in Salt Lake up to that top step of the podium.
0: A 10-year plan.
1: A 10-year plan. Is this common in,
0: in cross-country?
1: I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that was pretty ambitious to not just plan out the next Olympic cycle, but yeah. literally to plan out to the ultimate goal of my career.
0: And, and it's also interesting, your coaches were making a bet on you. They, they, they said, she's got the potential to do it, because that's a pretty serious commitment.
1: Right, and I, I would love to go back and, and hear the conversation that was going on in their mind, because, <laughs> right. I mean, I was being very pragmatic about it. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I'm 44th year, so show me the steps I need to clear yeah. to yeah. get to that metal. And as we started to build them out, it, it ended up taking, you know, 10 years. Wow. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, oh, but I'm, you know, I'm going to work harder than anybody, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it happen quicker than that. Mm-hmm. But it was cool to be able to see visually the steps I needed to clear. and. Right that became critical for me later on when a couple years into that process I was making progress but it was minute progress mm-hmm. I mean I I really at times wondered if I was going to make it um, but yeah. because I just kind of had to, like okay I've just got to focus on this step and then clearing that step to the next one
0: it takes a special type of mindset I think to keep going when you have these minute improvements 10 years is, is a long time you were you were nineteen. I was. Yep. I mean, that's fifty percent of your life in front of you that you were were right. And um, but they must have seen that that you had that in you because that's 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 a big that's a big bet. But what are some of the steps that are needed that you were describing, for example?
1: So at that point, I had just finished my final year of eligibility as a junior athlete. So mm-hmm. that's nineteen and under. Um, so I knew, and I'd had fairly decent results at that level so I wanted to then jump into the under 23 category mm-hmm. which was kind of the next peer group and I knew I needed to kind of prove that I could be successful at that level mm-hmm. and then once I kind of cleared the under 23 category then I needed to start racing on the World Cup first to gain experience then it was going to start to be going from top 30 to top 20 to top 15 Yeah. Um, and then it was gonna. I was gonna need to show success at a World Championships, mm-hmm. which is kind of where everybody's peaking at the same time, mm-hmm. and so that's mm-hmm. when the pressure's really on. Mm-hmm. And then the World Championships happens every other year, so that's one good benchmark. And then you need to start performing at the Olympics. And again, it's kind of the scale of first getting to the top ten then get into the top five, yeah. and then so we just kind of mapped it out like that, and so I could kind of see in those first couple of years, if I could get a couple good results at under 23s, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm on track, right. and then right. And then I didn't feel the pressure to perform in World Cup because I knew that was a step a little bit ahead of me.
0: So what the, what does it actually take to be great in cross country? What what are the, the building blocks here? <laughs> I, I certainly could see uh, and imagine... An iron will, but that's definitely not enough. Um, There's got to be almost some cardiovascular (laughs) things you're born with and or or that you develop. I mean, what what are the key elements?
1: Well, it's a fascinating sport in that it really has a lot of different components. Mm -hmm. So there's for sure the endurance piece uh, because we have races up to and for women thirty kilometers, which take about.
0: What's your specialty?
1: I tried to be as much of an all rounder as I could but I tended to do better at the shorter events. What we like to call the sprint, it's still three to three and a half minutes. So if you were to say that to someone who runs the 1,500 meter on the track for that equivalent time, they'd be like, that's not a sprint. (laughs) But for us it was. It was kind of that Mm -hmm. shorter, and and I excelled at that early on. And that ultimately ended up being one of my my most consistent, strong events. But I really loved everything. I loved the challenge of trying to make myself better at the longer distances. We also have two different techniques And so we have skate skiing which is much more lower body dominant Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of the newer part of the sport. Mm -hmm. And then we have classic style where you have to keep your skis parallel and Mm -hmm. that one requires a little bit more finesse and getting the technique. You could be the strongest athlete in the world but if you're not applying power efficiently um, and really having the timing right then Mm -hmm. uh, you're not as successful. So I was stronger at skating. And so I spent my whole career trying to bring my classic up to a high level. Mm-hmm. Um, got close at times, but I was always a little bit stronger at skating.
0: So the skating part, I, I'm going to guess, you can't keep that going for 30k. <laughs> uh, you're gonna, you're gonna be dead <laughs> uh, because it's you're going at a fast pace. Is that, is that why you have to kind of line up into the classical and get into a rhythm and and just keep going?
1: Well, um, the events are, are separate. It's kind of like in swimming where you have breaststroke and you have backstroke, and so when you they differentiate in the race if you're doing classic style then there's very specific rules like you have to keep your skis parallel Mm -hmm. Um, in skating it's technically a freestyle event so you could classic ski but we've actually developed techniques that that find more power in a more dynamic lateral movement so the key Mm -hmm. to to lasting those longer distances is you have to have a really good blend of endurance Mm -hmm. and power and that's what makes us still a little different from marathon running or even triathlon. Because we're going uphill and downhill, right. the terrain is constantly changing. Right. And because you're gl- you're gliding, you do get little windows of recovery in there. So you have to have these powerful bursts and then recover, power, recover. And so what I found is that um, I naturally had a lot of power. So for me, the key was developing my endurance. So that even in the sprint event, where it's three minutes long, I needed to be able to to be able to be fast in an efficient way so that mm. by the end of the three minutes I still had more gears to go to
0: Yeah.
1: as opposed to just being fast for 30 seconds off the line. <laughs>
0: right, um, right,
1: So I think that's a pretty cool part of it and um, the training is really fun because you get to develop all these different kind of mm-hmm. capacities and skills. So we're, we're doing a lot of skiing obviously but mm-hmm. we're also running and we're cycling and we're using some mm. f- more full body sports like swimming or rowing Uh, We're in the weight room twice at least twice a week really developing that power and that speed Um, And so I kind of felt like as I was going through training. I was always kind of doing something different There was always something different to focus on and so that kept it for me fresh and fun Sure always had something to look forward to
0: is um have there been technological innovations that have changed the sport? You know, a few years ago, there was that swimsuit that may have been banned since then, <laughs> but it was this kind of lightning swimsuit. In cycling, um, one of the reasons the British team has dominated for years, they seem to have the best technology along with the best training, mm-hmm. um, not to mention incredible athletes, but yeah. a lot of places there are great athletes. Um, so anyways, are there, have there been technological innovations that, that have come up, and is that a source of competitive advantage for uh, the U.S. Uh, team?
1: There's a lot of techno technology in our sport. I mean, the the skis themselves um, have a lot of different variations, and you you want to have <coughs> different characteristics in your ski for different snow conditions, which are never totally predictable so you got to have mm-hmm. a lot of options then the pattern they put in the bottom of the skis which either increases friction or reduces friction mm-hmm. depending on the snow type the wax they're laying on mm-hmm. so there's this whole activity in the sport that yes. happens before you even get to the start line yeah. so um, there's been some big changes in that I would have to say the American team is still a bit of an underdog in that area mm-hmm. We uh, big countries like Norway and Sweden their technical budget for wax is actually bigger than our entire operating budget we have they have these wax trucks that show up at a venue and they expand on both sides and they expand up and they have state-of-the-art ventilation systems and they they may have 30 guys working on finding the fastest wax that day and we have eight so it's it's been something we've had to kind of be a little bit innovative and, and challenge it's a lot
0: of people to figure out the right wax
1: it, it's in it's wow. incredibly complex um and the, again it makes it that much more satisfying yeah. when we have success in a race and i think in that race in Pyeongchang when we won the gold medal, we had the fastest skis in the field that day, and that was a huge piece of us being able to be in the position to and win that gold medal. that's because of the
0: balance of, it wasn't the actual ski, it was the wax on the ski and, it, and other things?
1: Well, so um, they tested about 80 pairs of skis that day to find the, the two fastest pairs uh-huh. in our entire team's fleet. So there was the, the ski huh. selection and then the wax selection, and then we were my partner and I were alternating loops around the course mm-hmm. and so when our partner would be out on the course we would essentially have about two and a half minutes where the, the service staff would take the skis off our feet mm-hmm. put it on the bench, apply a new layer of wax, mm-hmm. get the skis back on your feet before your partner was coming through the exchange zone. So having to work in an incredibly high pressure situation yeah. Um, yeah. but we had the fastest skis in the field that night and you could see if my partner was coming down the final downhill she was sitting in third place and she just came flying up on, on the top, wow. two. I mean, her skis were incredible, and, and my skis were incredible that night. And so it was, it was cool to know that, that our team, in a sense, outwaxed some of the bigger nations that night.
0: There were wow. A lot
1: of underdog stories going on. There's,
0: um, <laughs> uh, there's a great uh, podcast out of MIT, I think it's called CounterPoints, about sports analytics. And um, they had an episode a while ago on Formula One racing, and the question they were asking, because they, they set it up in this way, is should the mathematicians on the team get paid more than the driver? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they made the whole point about whatever their analytics are. So I imagine it's gone the same way with cross-country, because you talk about testing 80, 80 pairs of skis and the wax. There's there, there are at least two methods one could imagine testing. So this is a research question. One is getting out there and doing it, so and get empirical data, which is a little... I, I could see it, but that's kind of cumbersome. Another way is coming up with some type of algorithm uh, that can help you get there. So what did you guys do?
1: Uh, that's a good, that's a great question. I mean, I think we're always trying to look for new technology and ways to kind of innovate how we select that fastest wax and that fastest pair of skis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is collecting a lot of data over time and analyzing kind of what skis are consistently performing best and in what conditions. Yeah. and.
0: Um, I think mean, every sport's going to go in this direction because the whole world's going in this, in this uh, direction. Yeah. You know, what's, what's the algorithm? Yeah.
1: So we have that, but because we're a sport that's at the mercy of Mother Nature, yes. I mean, there's so much variability that it is really hard to kind of predict it in the way that some other sports yeah. can. So we try to find the balance of, of using, using the data and, and really having a structured system, but also be willing to react in the moment. Um, the challenge we're having in our sport is because we're seeing this disparity in resources specifically for that technical element, mm-hmm. you know, when Norway's budget is bigger than our entire operations budget, mm. you, you start to say, well, is it a fair competition? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's in a sense stifling the sport because a lot of the kind of smaller nations now, they, they literally are spending more on their WAX budget than they are on the development of wow. sending athletes to the right training camps yeah. and coaching and it's just long-term not healthy for the sport. Yeah. And so they're, they're actually looking at measures now to how can we maybe restrict or hmm. um, bring in the resources a little bit closer mm-hmm. so that some countries don't have this major advantage. And it comes back to a bit more of who's the best... Best athlete on the day, not who has the mo- the most yeah. uh, resources at their uh, disposal.
0: I don't know if we're going to go back to uh, back to that because it's taken over the world. One of the reasons there's inequality is the, there there's just gigantic advantages advantages for certain people, certain types of people. Uh, in in say in, in professional team sports, uh, there's a salary cap, which yep. is one of the ways to try to limit. In that case, it's money to buy athletes basically. Yep. Um, that sounds like something maybe being under, uh, under consideration in the IOC or in, or in cross country. But it's, uh, it, it's a really hard thing because they drive to come up with that advantage. And I wonder, this is almost philosophical, are we getting near the limits of what a human being can do in, in, a, in a sport?
1: I mean, we thought that coming into the four-minute mile when Roger Bannister hadn't broke the four-minute mile. I mean, like, there was a lot of very smart people that had already concluded it was just not physically possible to run under four minutes in the mile. So I don't think we can ever fully put a limit on human potential. I mean, I think we will figure out ways, you know, hopefully legitimate, healthy ways (laughs) to keep pushing performance up. I think for us the challenge in cross-country is just, you know, our there are so many sports out there and everybody's competing for interest of of athletes and of fans and we've realized that if we don't have exciting competitions where multiple countries are in the hunt mm-hmm. our sport's going to eventually die out and so that mm. in of its sense is maybe the motivator mm. we need to bring things back into the middle just so we can keep fostering really exciting competitions because yeah. if norway wins everything mm well, then the sport, you know, no everyone's going to lose interest. And Norway's a small country. Maybe everyone in their country watches cross-country skiing, but unless we get Germany and Poland and Switzerland wanting to watch cross-country skiing, we're not going to attract sponsors, we're not going to attract future athletes. And so its it's been really interesting in my role as an athlete representative to sit at the table and have some of these future-looking discussions and figure out um, what can we do collectively mm-hmm. to keep the sport that we love mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah. And sometimes... You have to realize that personal interest and that drive to be the best can be a little bit destructive.
0: Yeah, that's kind of an amazing statement when you think about it, right? <laughs> I mean, Olympic competition—it is the drive to be the best, and that that uh, that can create gigantic inequalities across countries. Ac- across countries, some people listening will say, "Well, of course, that's the way it should be. That's mm-hmm. that is what competition is." Right. But I understand your point. Of there's a there's a community that has to buy into. It. There's no. There's no law that says that cross-country skiing has to be an Olympic sport uh, at all. Right. Um, um, and that's what people sometimes forget. You know, ice hockey, women's ice hockey, is in a similar situation. There's two teams, Canada and the U.S., that are light years ahead. I mean, I know Finland and and, and the Sweden can be strong, but really, there's a gigantic uh, difference. Um, that's not the way it is in men's ice hockey, where there's probably six, at least six. Gigantic, like great countries that could win any of the Olympics or any of the world championships. Um, so, let's see. The, let's go back to the 10-year plan. So, now we got up to, there's 06, 10. What ha- so, walk us through real quick. So, what happened in 06?
1: So, in 2006, um, actually coming into those Olympics, I had been on the U.S. development team, but our funding got cut coming into those Olympi- that Olympic year. So, the U.S. ski team decided to actually... Uh, Cut the development team and cut the entire women's program And put their money into five guys They thought had an outside chance at a medal Mm. And that was really frustrating to me Because I saw the potential of One in in developing our skiers Maybe we weren't competitive for medals Right now, but if we were going to make that Ten year plan work, we needed to be in a supportive Environment, and I also really saw That the women's program If we kind of worked together We would get to the point where we Could also contend for medals Both individually and as a team and so getting both of those programs cut, leading in, coming into an Olympic year, just fired me up. <laughs> I mean, I just, I came into that season just so focused on wanting to prove mm-hmm. that, that I was worth it, that we mm-hmm. were worth it. We'll and show them. Exactly. And I ended up um, getting ninth place at the Olympics. Wow. I mean, my goal coming into the Olympics was top 20. Um, and I ended up surprising myself a little bit. And, and a lot
0: get, of commentators, no doubt, as well. Exactly. There was a bit
1: of a bit of surprise there. Um, Who is this girl? <laughs> <laughs> I had red and blue in my hair. And I, just, um, I also, I guess, surprised them because I had a smile on my face. Uh-huh. Uh, when this camera would pan to us on the start line, yeah. everybody was so focused in their competition yeah. mode. But I was just kind of in this zone where, like, wow, you know, I knew I was having a a really good day, and I was just so excited to be there. And so when the camera came to me, I just had the biggest smile on my face, and uh, that caught them off guard. But Mm. getting that ninth place at the Olympics was powerful for two reasons. One, it gave me the confidence that I was really on track in my 10-year plan. In fact, if not, I'm just a little bit ahead. And that was a huge breakthrough for me. But then it also was, I think, the signal to the U.S. ski team of, okay, you know, we made a mistake. We need to re- kind of bring things back around. Mm-hmm. We need to create that development team. We need to have a women's team. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that next year, uh, that kind of came back around. And I was the only woman named to the national team. So I still was a, f- a bit lonely and <laughs> wanted to f- foster a bit more mm-hmm. of a women's team so that I didn't have to be the only woman competing on the World Cup. Um, we had some good young skiers and I think I tried to interact with our development team as much as I could because I, even though I was kind of the leading results, I saw the power in working together with them and yep. saw they had strengths that would uh, push me. And I also really enjoyed sharing my experience and, and c- helping cultivate them so that eventually we could be teammates someday.
0: So ninth place in 2006. 2010, what happened?
1: So 2010 uh, was the, the tricky part about the two techniques. So between 2006 and 2010, I had, I had started to podium and then win on the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And so in skate sprints, which is a very specific event. Yep. And in Vancouver, it was a classic sprint. So it would kind of be like... You
0: mean there's a rule that you have to only follow one technique? Is that what that means?
1: Exactly, yep. In, in the race, you have to do with the, the technique they say. Why so would they do
0: that? <laughs> Why not any way you can get there?
1: Because it's the tradition we have in the sport. So yeah. cross-country skiing started with this classic style where your skis have to be parallel. Yeah. And as, as this new technique skating came in, they wanted to preserve the tradition, yeah. but still have this new innovation. So kind of like, again, swimming has breaststroke and backstroke and butterfly. True. We have classic and skate true but then we have this varying distances and we unfortunately unlike swimming we don't get to have every distance at in every technique at every olympics yes so we have we have a sprint event we have a middle distance and we have a long distance and then we have um two relays and so what they do is they flip-flop them Ah, every olympics
0: so there was no there was no kind of skating technique allowed for the sprint which is really your sweet spot
1: it was so well, I knew if it had been a skate sprint, I probably was in a position to challenge for medals. Mm-hmm. Coming into Vancouver, I had to change my personal expectations and know that if I were to get into the top 12 mm-hmm. in a classic sprint, yes. that would be a huge breakthrough for me. Yeah. So I, I set that goal coming in, and I ended up surprising myself and finishing eighth, bettering myself by one place from, yeah. from yeah. the yeah. Olympics yeah. before. But the coolest part about that Olympics was was the team stuff that started to take shape. Mm. So we had a team sprint event, which was in skating. We ended up finishing sixth, and that was by far the furthest up we'd ever finished in a team event. And then I skied the first leg of the four-person relay, and three kilometers into the race i was still right with the leaders and in fact on one of the downhills i had such good skis i sailed to the front of the race wow and i remember thinking at the time oh my god i'm leading the olympic relay uh, <laughs>
0: this is you know what is am that i doing good to be a- yeah. alert of that or just kind well, of keep your head down, keep i mean
1: head. <laughs> I th- up to that point as an american i hadn't felt like i actually belonged at that level
0: yeah
1: but to be at that point three kilometers into the race right. that was an a- aha moment for yep. me yep. of okay i'm surprised to be here But I shouldn't be surprised to be here because Mm -hmm. now I'm skiing with these girls, and this is where I should expect myself to be. So I ended up coming in with the leaders, tagged off to my team. You know, the rest of my team was really pretty young at that point. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, I think we finished 13th or something. But that was the first glimpse of, like, oh... You know, maybe if we can start putting together not just one person, but two people, and three people, and four people that can stay up front, we can hunt for medals someday. Yeah, and I knew how personally I was excited Mm. about that concept of not just being able to excel individually, but being able to do it as a team. Because I always found I could dig a little deeper Mm. when I knew my team was counting on me, and Mm -hmm. I loved. The whole process leading into the race of kind of all being nervous together, all having the strategy, um, and then when we did have a big result, getting to kind of celebrate it all together yeah. afterwards. I mean,
0: again, it's this, this theme of, of the power of the team, um, especially in, in women's sports and maybe in, in, in for, for, for women in a, lot of, in a lot of endeavors in a lot of fields. Why does it um, take so long for a cross-country skier to really get to um, the peak of her capability? Um, um, yeah, well, I mean, because it's, I mean, there aren't not, too many 20-year-old champions, like they're never. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, there's, there's been a few outliers, um, and I would have to say you ha- kind of have two things. You have one of, of actually getting to that level and putting down a performance once, mm-hmm. and then you have the consistency factor. And I mm-hmm. think the reason why it takes so long to develop as a cross-country skier is you have to build a pyramid and every year of training you do builds another layer to your pyramid Mm -hmm. and so you just have to spend some early years in your career putting the time in I don't know exactly what physiologically is happening in there but you're building the capillary network you're building um, specific tension in your joints to be able to apply power Mm -hmm. in a specific pattern of movement you're refining the technique so there's the very very physiological things but then there's also the experience of figuring out how to pace a race how to deal Mm -hmm. with uh, in mass start races when someone's trying to cut across, you know, push you around a little bit. Uh-huh. Like, I had to learn the hard way. Yeah. You know, I had to go and get pushed down a few times mm-hmm. before I realized if you ski with confidence and you protect your space... Um, yeah, find you know, someone else to knock exactly, over. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so there's the tactical element and the yeah. experience yeah. element and of, uh, you know, experiencing the those breakthrough performances mm-hmm. where you realize, like, actually, I can ski at this level. Mm-hmm. But then you'll go back and you'll spend much more time you know, kind of at the bottom level of struggling and it's just gradually kinda lifting yourself up time and time again. So I like to say cross country skiers are like a fine wine. You know, you just keep getting better with age. And I now that I have the perspective at the end of my career, I'm really excited to have been in a sport that actually took so long to develop.
0: Right. Because I
1: remember Sarah Hughes winning the gold medal at sixteen years old in Salt Lake City.
0: Amazing. And thinking,
1: well that would be really cool. (laughs) But if you hit the pinnacle of your sport at sixteen Right. Where do you go from there? And for me, I had these like, nice steps, and every step was important, and every mm. step you know, gave me that little success that built and built. And for me to actually win an Olympic medal on my, in my fifth Olympic Games 20 years into the process, um, it's, it was the fairytale ending for me. I, I'm so happy it, it happened that, the
0: way it did. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about that great Olympic year, 2018. Describe the day.
1: Well, it's actually kind of important to talk about the year coming in because um, I was looking forward to that Olympics because the team events, but the part I hadn't anticipated was that by encouraging my team and cultivating this team, they were all going to get so strong that I may not even make it myself. Oh, boy. So coming into those games, uh, my teammates were all skiing incredibly well. Uh, six weeks before, I'd been struggling with a stress fracture in my foot mm. and had not been able to race as much as I'd hoped. So coming in, I, I was pretty nervous about getting any, any starts, let alone making the relay teams. So I was, I was fortunate that I got an opportunity early in the games and was able to show that my form was sharpening. And then I got a spot on the four-person relay. And then it wasn't until 36 hours before that team sprint that I found out that I was going to be on the team. Oh, and nice. it was down... Between my teammate and I, and we were both sitting in our room at 10 o'clock at night when the coach came in to let us know who they were going to pick. And you knew for one of us it was going to just be a dream come true, Mm -hmm. and for the other person it was going to be devastating because we knew we had a potential to win a medal. And so when he told us that they decided to go with me, my teammate showed the most amazing uh, team spirit I've ever seen. She turned to me and she said, You know what? You know I wanted to be on that team, but I believe in you as much as I believe in myself. What can I do to help? And
0: I just, you know, my
1: course immediately (laughs) choked up and it was incredible. And and she and and the other girls that weren't Mm. on the team just were amazing. We all did a workout on the course the next day. Um, They were all out there cheering their faces off that night. Mm. Um, And so when we came to race day, Jesse and I, who were the two on the team, the last time we had teamed up was five years prior at the World Championships when we had won the first ever gold medal at a World Championships. And so we thought, well, that day was special, so whatever we did that day, let's recreate. <laughs> let's do that again. And so at the yeah. time, we'd been in really into the show Glee, so we, mm-hmm. we turned on our favorite Glee clips, and we, we had, had these relay socks that I had actually found in a German convenience store a few years prior. So we pulled on our relay socks. Those had kind of become our special thing. Wow. And we, we never talked about the medals. We talked about just going out and mm-hmm. executing our strategy and representing our country. And So we had to do a semifinal final. Um, which is we each did three laps around the course alternating. Uh, We ended up winning our semifinal, and so that gave us both a lot of confidence that our our shape was coming together at just the right time and that our skis were were definitely um, really fast. And then we had about an hour break in between, and so we just tried to kind of temper the nerves a little bit. and what do just you kind do of for that
0: hour? Oh, my God.
1: You try to kind of cool down from that first hard effort, you no. know, to clear the lactic acid out of your muscles. We had our massage therapist, physical therapist there with us. We were underneath the stadium, and so we were doing massage, and just I had on, a, you know, a good, upbeat country playlist. Yep. and just, You're just kind of having this mm-hmm. positive self-talk conversation in your head, just reminding yourself you've done the preparation, that you have full trust in your teammates mm-hmm. and do their job. And so when we walked out of the stadium that night, the the lights were on, and it was the most Olympic-feeling race of my career. I mean, I just could feel the energy in in such a positive way because I knew it was going to be my last Olympic race. I knew it was my last chance to to be a teammate, you know, with with, with this. And so I just knew I was going to roll my eyes back in my head if I had to (laughs) to do my job and and keep us in position. And so uh, when the camera panned across in front of me, were you there with the I, smile? I, I had a big smile on my on my <laughs> face, and I just was so psyched and so confident. And uh, the gun went off, and I was up against um, two very strong uh, distance skiers, one from Norway, one from Sweden, mm-hmm. that are two of some of the most successful women that have ever been in the sport. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew that my job was to stay with them. And as the first lap went through, I was I was right in the mix. Just I actually skied a little wide, so I made sure to stay out of trouble and not, not risk... Mm-hmm crossing skis with anybody Mm -hmm. you know stayed right in the mix i you know tagged off the jesse she stayed right in contention um second lap the pace picked up a bit but i was kind of matching them stride for stride and then tagged off the jesse another clean tag um and then she actually put in a big burst of speed on her second lap so by the time she came in to tag me for the final time um the the race had been broken down to three teams to to decide the medals Those, those
0: two other teams Yes, Norway, yeah, Norway
1: and Sweden. Uh, and everybody had been talking That's about the rivalry between Norway and Sweden. Certain. No one was talking about the U.S. <laughs> so it was a perfect, a position, to perfect position to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as we, we nailed that final tag, and uh, I went off in the lead. Um, I remember kind of strategically letting Norway and Sweden come around me to kind of block the wind a little bit. And then as we headed into this slight downhill, I started to feel a little bit of a gap <laughs> form. And I knew that I could not let any snow build up between me and those other skiers, and so I accelerated, and then uh, just stayed glued to those girls coming in, because I thought about trying to make a move to the front, but I knew that my role was just to keep us in condition, and I had full confidence that Jesse would find some magic on that last lap, so I skied as hard as I could, and I tagged off in metal contention, Mm -hmm. and then just, you know let it be what it would be and by the time I actually kind of had picked myself up off the ground <laughs> uh, after that exhaustive effort I looked up and I saw them coming down the hill into the stadium and at that point Jessie was in third but her skis were so fast that she took a wide line and almost went off the course oh. and then came in at just the last second and I kind of thought to myself geez do I even want to watch this <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, she she made it to the narrowest margin And then they kind of disappeared out of sight, coming around the final corner, and I ran over to the finish area, and I found myself next to the Swedish girl. And by that point, uh, they had gotten ahead of Norway, and it was down to US versus Sweden on that home stretch, and so we're both yelling as if we can will our partner to the finish line quicker. So we're yelling, and they're sprinting, and they are, from our perspective, dead even. And you see the lunge at the line, and I thought I was gonna look up the scoreboard and see photo finish. Uh, mm-hmm. and when I looked up and saw number one United States, I just let out the biggest, most awkward <laughs> yell because I just couldn't believe it. We didn't just get a medal, we got
0: the gold got medal. We got the gold medal. Oh, my God. I'll never forget that.
1: No, it was so incredible, and it and it, it couldn't have been written. The script could not have been written any better. Mm-hmm. You had some of the best teams, the best skiers that have ever graced the sport, racing. It was a clean race. It was exciting literally to the last few inches. Right. Um, Mm. and it happened in a team event You know, I'd I'd had a pretty good opportunity to win an individual medal four years prior and in the end I didn't put together the day when it counted Mm. and so to come back four years later and be able to win the first ever medal in a team event
0: first um, ever medal for the United States
1: first ever ever gold medal
0: medal.
1: for the women's we had one other silver medal from 1976 so it had been a long time since then first ever women's medal first ever gold medal And the best part was that our entire team was right there. So as Jesse and I got up off the snow, we got to run over and Mm -hmm. hug all our teammates and all our coaches and all our waxing staff, and my husband was there too. And it just, the accomplishment, which represented the team effort, we got to all celebrate it in that moment. And to me, that was the best part.
0: And this was a really 20-year run, all all told. Maybe longer if you start to go back. Amazing. Um, And you retired.
1: I did. I knew coming into the Olympics that I was going to retire at the end of that season. Um, I'd had five Olympics by that point and an incredible career, Mm -hmm. Um, but I had a a young family and my husband had been very supportive of, of my last two Olympics, but we were excited to shift gears and support his career. And I'd also gotten involved in all these cool projects, like the Fast and Female organization yes. that I'm leading, um, doing athlete representative work uh, within the IOC. Um, I really enjoyed kind of going out and sharing my all my experiences kind of in a motivational speaking kind of avenue. So as much as I loved my sport, I was also excited and ready for the next chapter.
0: And then uh, an unexpected chapter uh, hit, didn't it? Um, And was it three months after the Olympics that you were diagnosed with cancer?
1: Yeah, it was about three months after we won that gold medal. And uh, we just moved to Canada, um, just starting to set up this new life with my Mm. husband and my son. It was Mother's Day, had a wonderful day all together. Mm. And I just happened to be getting ready for bed and noticed that something didn't feel right. Mm. And uh, it took a couple of weeks to kind of get get down to the bottom of it, but it turned out to be breast breast cancer. Which was just a complete Mm. shock. Because I just went from the pinnacle of my athletic career, almost feeling invincible, to all yeah. of a sudden like having to confront my mortality, mm-hmm. and especially with my young family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had been excited to expand our family. It just it was such a shock, and yet it was amazing how quickly my athlete frame of mind took over so. and and realized that this was just my new challenge. Huh? That this was going to be like that 10-year plan. I was just going to have to break down this very daunting, scary thing into small pieces that I could conquer one at a time. Just stay focused on the things I can control.
0: Yep.
1: You know, use use physical activity to keep my body kind of processing this and moving through. Um, knowing that I was going to need a team around me mm-hmm. more than ever. Mm-hmm. And instead of being the one kind of leading, I was going to be the one that was going to be needing, you know, the support and the help. And, right. you know, people helping me stay focused and right. and positive And um, and so that quickly we just kind of started to put that together and I I realized that all that athletic experience mm-hmm. helped me get through the
0: yep. biggest yep. challenge I how, ever had. And how to are face. you feeling as we speak today?
1: I'm I'm feeling great. You know, I I maybe would have said a little while ago that this was kind of this day is so-so. I mean, I recognize I'm not in the superhuman shape I was a year <laughs> ago, but um,
0: but that fitness itself had to have uh, helped dealing with this
1: oh no no question i mean even though exercising eating right you know taking really good care of my body didn't prevent cancer from happening in the first place Mm -hmm. it has made it so much easier to get through the treatment Mm. and even though i had some tough days and got knocked down um it helped me kind of respond and get through it quicker and now as i'm coming back up on the other side i just am appreciating how good it feels and just making the most of every moment right because this is the kind of change in perspective where you realize wow maybe I don't have unlimited time and so I'm gonna make the most of what I have right now
0: and your story is so um, inspirational and and there's so much that you can learn from as well so I know you're you're um, you're speaking to groups about about your life and about your experiences Um, and um, um, I'm sure the reaction has been you know this is this is a story we probably people are thinking I want my daughter to listen to this that's (laughs) what I would think I know I'm thinking that right now myself (laughs) Um, uh, let me ask you just a couple more questions before we uh, before we wrap up. Um, imagine you can go back in time to uh, your twenty one year old self, uh, and um, and you kind of sit next to uh, next to twenty one year old Keegan, and you say, Well, what 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 advice would you give him?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Well. Um, you know, now that I'm kind of contemplating this transition in life, and I'm starting to look a little bit more at my resume and kind of some of the things I have done or have not done outside of sport. At 21 years old, I would probably say, you know what? Uh, I was taking some classes back then. I was trying to balance it with skiing. Um, eventually, I kind of I left before I finished my undergraduate degree to really focus on skiing. And looking back at that point, I think that balance was really important in my life and i wish i would have dug down a little bit and maybe finished that degree Mm. just to have that one other thing kind of checked off a little bit yeah um at the same time i love that i was able to combine my studies and my skiing and and i was studying a business career at the time and it actually helped me figure out how to run my business as being an athlete and how to support Mm. myself to focus on the training full-time that took to succeed so um i think just recognizing what a great thing that combination of factors that was mm-hmm. and then i really learned the value of of reaching out and making friends on other teams even with my competitors and eventually inviting myself over to their houses mm-hmm. in, you know in europe to do training camps and i didn't discover that till later in my career and mm-hmm. so now to my younger teammates i'm trying to pass along the message like hey you know your competitors might seem intimidating to you but get to know them and don't be afraid to invite yourself over or invite them to come train with you because I learned so much uh, both on the tra- in a training respect of what I'm capable of doing yeah. but more importantly that we're all very similar people and it's been amazing to push each other on the training field or on the racing but then have this bond yeah. of, of this experience that we've shared and now I have lifelong friends because of it. Yeah.
0: So the the transition from being a world class athlete, a gold medalist no less, to civilian life, if you will, and of course you know we've just talked briefly about you know, cancer and fighting that, which changes everything, um, but it's um, it's a difficult transition I think. Um, because everything is laid out for you you've got that 10-year plan you talked about and you know, 20-year plan and, and succeeded and now there, there there, are not as many rules out there you have to kind of create it yourself right can you say a little bit about how you've kind of tackled that that challenge this transition
1: sure well I I knew because I'd been in sport for so long that you know all good things must come to an end <laughs> and there was gonna be a point when I was gonna have to transition out of sport and I was definitely excited about the opportunities I had and maybe not being as restricted to a certain training schedule or racing. But now that I've been out, outside of the sport for almost a year now, I've realized how much structure there was within sport. Like you, Everything was so clearly defined. Everything was so linear. You, knew, you kind of knew what your goal was, and yeah, you knew yeah. what steps were to get mm-hmm. there, and you knew the resources. And now you're thrown out into this big, wide world <laughs> where nothing is as clearly defined. You know, I you have to figure out kind of what are the skills that I know I've developed over twenty years as an Olympic athlete, but how does that apply to um, kind of the normal world and mm-hmm. in business and where can I find the things that get me as excited to chase after these really ambitious goals and who are the people I want to surround myself with because I know how important team has been to me and I, I love the that I've been able to play the role in helping Expand our team and expand the, the culture of skiing in the United States, and so Can I play a similar role because I know that's what really brings me uh, Meaning yeah. and accomplishment so where where are the opportunities to be able to do that, and yeah. there's a million answers to that question And it's it's really hard when you've been so clearly focused on one thing to have to do a little bit more soul-searching and figure that out yeah. And I'm yeah. realizing um, I got to take part in the Next Step program um, at Tuck, and one of the best things I pulled out of it was it's not going to be linear from here on out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be a bit more of a me during course, but um, just like in skiing, every year built upon itself. Right. You know, we just kind of keep experimenting and keep trying that, and I think just right. taking the pressure off myself to have to have it figured out right now and just be open to opportunity and, and testing out different things.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's not linear. And the other thing is that you get to... Uh, Try to create the path that you're on. Um, there's no science behind this. No science to <laughs> kind of how life works. There might be a science behind how to you increase the odds of becoming an Olympic medalist.
1: Yes, <laughs> um, but
0: there isn't when it comes to to life. Um, so um, you're married and you have a three-year-old. Uh, where'd you meet your husband?
1: We met uh, at this tiny little bowling alley up in northern Maine. Um, It it was a social event after one of the ski races, Mm -hmm. and he had a Brooks uh, t-shirt on for the running shoe company. Mm -hmm. At the time, I'd been working at a running store, and so I threw out some smart aleck comment about running (laughs) shoe technology, and he actually knew what I was talking about. Uh And so as we kind of picked up the conversation, I found out that he had run track, and I had a bit of a running background, and he was just kind of coming back into skiing, and So we just really started this kind of conversation, and and at the end of the night, I pulled out one of my Olympic autograph cards, and I just said, hey, I really enjoyed talking to you. Here's my email. And, uh, you know, kind of thought, like, what are the chances I ever hear from this guy again? And the next day, we got an email. And so then we started talking over email, and a couple weeks later, I convinced him to buy a webcam so that we could talk (laughs) over Skype. And um, it was kind of cool that over the first year, we saw each other in person a handful of times, but for the most part, got to really know each other through just talking about our interests and And about a year later, I convinced him to move to Alaska because he wanted to try and make the 2010 Olympic team. And I said, hey, if you're serious about that, you need to be in a place with good training, with quality training partners, and a good coach. And at the time, he was uh, living just north of Toronto, and he was commuting 45 minutes each way into Mm -hmm. a part-time job and trying to fit in training around that. And I said, you know, skiing, you don't have skiing forever. You have this really clear amount of time right now, Mm -hmm. a goal you're trying to chase take a risk do it you know go all in mm-hmm. um, put yourself mm-hmm. in a good position and then then you won't have any regrets because you'll know you give everything you have and the rest of life you can pick that up anytime you right. can get back to your career and, and so i think he he bought into it and convinced him to move to alaska and um after spending a lot of time together kind of training and everything we decided that we made a good a good pair yeah,
0: you're a good pair what a, what a great <laughs> story um <laughs> uh, well Keegan Randall, what a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much, um, and I think a lot of people are going to hear a lot more about you.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, I, uh, it's been a pleasure to be on the podcast, and um, leadership is something that's just such a fascinating topic to me, and as I do transition out of sport, I, I hope to just learn as much as I can and find another way to, to be a leader in a new avenue. So um, really enjoy being on the
0: podcast. Great having you. Take care.